Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, as some of you were watching that video, you are aware of the fact that it is an homage to one of the most profound and significant works of cinematic art in all of history, Tommy Boy. Right? It's a great movie, seen just like that in it. And uh, it's a story of Chris Farley and David Spade, two guys who are about as different as they can be, but they go on a road trip to save the family business. Two guys start off totally uh, at each other's throats. They can't stand each other, but after spending a week trapped in the confines of a car, they become friends. And it's a, a great story of people who don't realize that they need each other until they're forced to get to know each other. Side note on this. One time I met Chris Farley at a cheesecake factory. He made fun of me, and that was the greatest moment of my life. (laughs) We love to tell stories like this, stories of unlikely people actually becoming friends. Why is it that those stories are so appealing and we tell them again and again? Well, I think that if the Bible is true, it's because God is telling that sort of story with humanity. It's the story of people who never should have gotten together by any reasonable, uh, you know, realistic way. They shouldn't have gotten together, but they actually come together and become family. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Acts, New Testament book of Acts, chapter 10. This summer, we have been spending our time in the book of Acts, both in our daily Bible reading plan called Bible Savvy, but also in our weekend teaching. And I have been loving this. My kids and I, each morning, we listen to the reading for the day on our Bible app and we discuss it over breakfast. We've got to have some great conversations about how powerful God's spirit is, about what it means to be a part of his family, the church, about how exciting it is to share the good news of Jesus with other people. And personally, I have found this book to be both really challenging and really inspiring. Uh, This passage in particular is one of the challenging ones because it's a story about crossing lines that divide different people. And let's be honest, we're not really good at crossing those sorts of lines. The lines that divide our world between people of different cultures and ethnicities between the rich and the poor, between people of different ages. You know, there's boomers and Xers and millennials and whatever you call people who are younger than me. I have no idea. But this is the story of two men who are crossing lines that in their world, people did not cross. And it's an incredibly significant story for the Christian movement because it's, it's actually told three times in the book of Acts. It's so important because it's the point where God convinces the church of something that's essential to who we are, that the church is called to both unity and diversity. We're called to both unity and diversity. We are supposed to be the place where the divided fragments of humanity get stitched back together. The place where we get a glimpse of the kingdom that is coming, a kingdom made up of the rich and the poor, of the young and the old, a kingdom drawn from every tribe and nation and language. And this is the event that God uses to teach his people that lesson. So let's start reading in in verse one here. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. There are two characters in this story. The first one is this man, Cornelius. And here are the two relevant things you need to know about him. The first is this. He is a Roman. That means he is not a Jew. He is a Gentile. That's going to be very important. Second is this. Cornelius is very interested in God. He's not yet a follower of Jesus. He doesn't know about Christ, but he is a worshiper of Israel's God. 
He's a prayerful man. He's a generous man. In modern terms, we might call him a spiritual seeker. Here's why this is important. It shows that the barrier that stands between Cornelius and the other character, Peter, is not one of spirituality. Cornelius is not spiritually hostile. He's not morally offensive. The barrier between them is simply cultural. Let's keep reading in verse 3. One day at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. Here's our second main character, a man named Peter. Peter is Jewish. And even though he's a follower of Jesus, he is still culturally very Jewish. He follows Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. He expresses his devotion to Jesus in very Jewish ways. Even the times of prayer that are talked about in this are the Jewish times of prayer. And this is about to cause some problems because part of having a strong Jewish identity in that era meant keeping your distance from outsiders, from Gentiles. And so Cornelius is about to ask Peter to do something he has never done and enter the home of a Gentile. So the basic problem in the story is this. Cornelius wants to know, but Peter doesn't want to go. Cornelius wants to know, but Peter doesn't want to go. Peter is normally a bold witness. He doesn't back down from a chance to talk about Jesus ever until now. So why doesn't Peter want to go? We're going to look at three barriers that stood between Peter and Cornelius, and then we're going to look at three breakthroughs that overcame those barriers. Let's keep reading in verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Here's the first barrier. Biblical laws biblical laws. At first, this dream that Peter has feels really, really random, doesn't it? Like if what what God wants is for Peter to go talk to Cornelius, then why is he giving him a dream about his diet? It just doesn't make sense. How's it connected? To explain this, I got to go all the way back to the beginning. Uh, On the first page of the Bible, God makes a good world, but on the second page of the Bible, sin comes into that good world and makes a complete mess out of everything cuts off people from God, shatters relationships. It's a total disaster. The world is in shambles and God looks at it and says, I don't want to just leave it that way. And so he decides to fix it from the inside out. And the way he does this is he actually looks at all the people groups of the world and he selects one family, the family of Abraham, which eventually becomes the nation of Israel. And he says, I am going to use you to rebuild the world from the inside. God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach you how to live the way things were meant to be. I'm going to be your king, and I'm going to show you what it looks like to live in my kingdom. Basically, Israel was the pilot project for the recreated world. And the point was not just to bless Israel. The point was that they would be a light to the nations. All the people groups around them would look at them and say, wow, that's what it looks like to live under God's leadership and his love? I want that. That's amazing. 
Now, here's the counterintuitive part about this plan. In order for Israel to be a light to the nations, they actually have to be distinct from the nations. And so that meant that while Israel was learning to live under God's rule, they needed to have boundaries that separated them from the other people groups around them. The other day, I was talking to Cindy, who's our worship pastor at Streamwood Bartlett Campus, and she was telling me about the time when she lived in Brazil and she was trying to learn Portuguese. And she said one of the hardest things about learning Portuguese was that there were people around her who knew English. And so it would always be easier to just slip into speaking English with them because it was a struggle to, to actually work through and think, how would you say this in Portuguese? She actually said it hindered her learning the language because uh, she had people kind of helping her slip back into that old way of speaking and thinking. What she needed was to be immersed in the language and the culture and basically cut off from the old one. That's the idea with Israel. Being separate from the nations was like a cultural immersion program in the kingdom of God. If they weren't separate enough, they would, just, uh, they would never learn God's way of life. They would just lapse back in to the way of life of the groups around them. And so when God gave Israel the law, he included rules in there that were designed specifically to keep Israel separate and distinct from the people around them. Among those laws were certain rules about the food that they were allowed to eat. The food that they were allowed to eat was called clean animals, and the food that they were not allowed to eat was called unclean. Now, I do not have time to get into which, which ones uh, are clean and unclean and why. Uh, the good news is we actually did a sermon series about a year ago on the book of Leviticus where most of these rules come from, and we talk about that in there. So if you're interested in learning more about that, you can go find those messages on our website. But the reason God is talking to Peter about the food laws is because God knows that these are the laws that are keeping Peter from interacting with Gentiles. God gave them those laws, but now they have become a barrier. Here's what makes this even more complicated. The second barrier in Peter's life is this, Peter's cultural history, his cultural history. So when God gave Israel those laws, the biggest danger facing Israel, that they would become too much like the nations around them. But 1,500 years later, when Peter is interacting with God, the temptation in some ways is the exact opposite. In the centuries leading up to this story, the people of Israel were attacked by empire after empire after empire. And so the Jews were afraid that their culture would be swallowed up by the culture of all these military superpowers that were coming through. And so in reaction to this, they, they fought back to preserve their cultural identity, and they developed a lot of extra customs and rules to prevent their way of life from eroding. In this chapter, Peter actually mentions one of those. In verse 28, he talks about how there is a law that Jews are not allowed to associate with or visit Gentiles. Now, you can search the entire Old Testament and you will not find that law written down there. It is a cultural add-on to guard their Jewish identity in a world that is pressing them to give it up. The problem with this was that it didn't just lead to cultural separation. It gave some Jewish groups a sense of cultural superiority. So there's a, a Jewish prayer from around this time that starts off by saying, I thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile. I thank you I'm not one of those people. They prided themselves on being God's special people. But instead of that making them a light to the rest of the world, it often made them just look down on the rest of the world. And this was the culture that Peter grew up in. Every one of us has a cultural history. It was out of our control, but as we grew up, we heard messages about the groups that we belong to and about other groups of people. Some of those messages were overt. Most of them, though, were pretty subtle. Attitudes and assumptions about different types of people that we just picked up. This is what all women are like. This is what all men are like. Old people act like this. Young people act like that. 
People from this race or culture, they, they're lazy or they're good at sports or they can't dance or they're, they're dangerous criminals. They're bad drivers. They're good at math. F- fill in the blank. And we internalize those messages whether we were trying to or not. This past year, the school district in my area redrew the lines of where people were going to different elementary schools. And my neighborhood was one of the ones that was most affected by that. And as you can imagine, there was quite a bit of chatter in the neighborhood, to put it very mildly. Uh, People were very upset about this. And most people were upset for obvious reasons. We loved our old school, and it's hard for kids to switch schools. And so people get worked up about that sort of thing. Uh, My wife and I were, uh, you know, disappointed because we used to be able to send our daughter out our back door, and she could walk across the field to the school, and now the other school is about a mile away. But, you know, those are not that big of a deal sorts of things. Sometimes, though, I heard people raise the concern like this. We can't have our kids going to that school because if they go to that school, they'll be with kids from that neighborhood. Now, the implication always was that neighborhood is a rough neighborhood. Now, I always want to say, we're still talking about St. Charles here, right? Because like like a rough neighborhood in St. Charles is like going from three-ply to two-ply, you know, like still pretty cushy. But that neighborhood always was one with a little bit lower property values or a higher level of ethnic diversity. And I I don't know what the people who are saying that, what what was really going on in their hearts. I know a lot of it just comes from anxiety about how their kid's going to do and that sort of thing. But I couldn't help but think, what happens when your child hears those sorts of comments? And then they go to that school and then they're in that school with someone from that neighborhood. And you never told them, look down on that kid or be afraid of that kid or pity that kid, or know you're better than that kid. But that's what's going to happen, right? We pick up these sorts of messages from our parents, from our peers, from the media that tells us this is what other groups of people are like. Most of us, especially if you're from a dominant cultural group, you haven't had to spend much time reflecting on the cultural messages you've absorbed throughout your life. But it's really important that we become aware of these things because these assumptions become a barrier between us and other people, even if we aren't aware of them. Here's a third barrier between Peter and Cornelius. Peter's personal experience, his personal experience. Peter tells God, I've never eaten anything unclean in my whole life. It's an implication that he's never actually eaten a meal with someone who wasn't Jewish. He's never entered a Gentile home. He has no personal experience with non-Jewish people. Psychologists who study friendship have found that the most important factor in whether or not you enjoy another person is not their personality, it is not your shared interests, and is not your common values. The number one factor in whether or not you like someone is how frequently you interact with them. Why is that? It's because the more often you're with someone, the more familiar you are with them, and you're able to predict their behavior, their normal activity, better. And the reason this makes you like them more is because it's simply less stressful to be around them. Uh, Psychologists say it's less cognitively taxing. You just don't have to think as hard when you're with them because you understand how they operate. They've actually done studies that show when we're with people who we're not familiar with or we're in cultures that we're not familiar with, our fight or flight reflexes, our physiological stress responses get activated. And it makes the interaction physically more uncomfortable. When you're around people you see frequently, though, cultures you're often in, your mind and your body don't have to work as hard. And so you enjoy the experience more, simply because your body is more relaxed. The less personal experience you have with a group of people, 
the more you're gonna feel stressed, anxious, afraid when you interact with those people and the less you're gonna enjoy it. If the only adults you ever interact with are your parents, you're always gonna be nervous around adults. If you rarely interact with young people, you're gonna be irritated by young people all the time, not because they're doing something obnoxious, but because you simply don't understand them. When we lack experience with certain types of people, we fill in that lack of experience with assumptions and generalizations, impressions of the group. Uh, One of my best friends is a guy named Ted. Ted and I went to the same college, we graduated the same year. But while we were in college, I could not stand Ted. The reason was, is he was a football player. And uh, my physique notwithstanding, I was not. (laughs) I was a mathlete, because trigonometry is a real sport. Ted was the sort of guy who beat up guys like me in junior high, okay? And I didn't really have a lot of personal interactions with Ted in college, but I knew his type, you know? He's the dumb jock. He thinks he's cooler than everybody else. He gets away with things because he's part of the team. When we graduated, though, we got hired at the same place in the same department, which meant I saw him every day. We had more interactions. I became more familiar with him. And guess what I found out about Ted? He is a dumb jock who thinks he's better than everybody else. (laughs) No, he's not. He didn't fit my stereotypes, my stupid stereotypes about football players. He's a really thoughtful guy, someone I'm really thankful to call my friend, my brother. And I wouldn't have had that if I hadn't actually got to know him, have personal experience with him. There's an old story about a conversation that goes like this. You see that man over there? Yeah, I hate him. Why? You don't even know him. That's why I hate him. When we don't have personal experience with a group, it becomes a barrier between us and them. So how do we overcome the barriers? Let's go back to Acts chapter 10. Uh, After Peter has this dream, Cornelius' men show up at his house and God says, you better go with them. So Peter welcomes them in for the evening and then the next morning they go out to Cornelius' house. Let's keep reading in verse 23. The next day, Peter started out with them and some, some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And then Cornelius explains his vision and how God told him to send for him. Let's look at the breakthroughs here. Each of them addresses one of the barriers. To address the barrier of biblical laws, we need to move the story forward. We need to move the story forward. This is what Peter is talking about when he says, God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. This is the meaning of that vision with all of the animals. God was saying that all those laws that separated Israel from the rest of the world, they no longer apply. Now, this is a confusing thing for people because they think, wait a minute, wait a minute, can God just change his mind and switch the rules? And what's going on here? It helps to remember that the Bible is a story. And like all stories, as the plot progresses, things change, conditions change. And that means if you don't know where you are in the story and you just drop in, you're gonna get confused as to what the rules of the game are. Uh, Some things that made sense early on no longer make sense in later times because the story has progressed, things have happened. 
So early in the plot of the Bible, it made sense for God to say, Israel, you need to be separate from the cultures around you. And so he gave them those laws. But between then and this story, something really, really, really big has happened. You know what it is? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection is the reason the rules have changed. Sometimes people wonder, well, could God just keep doing that today? Could he just change the rules? You know, could, could the Christian moral code keep evolving with culture? Or could God just give me a dream and tell me I don't have to follow certain rules? I actually had people say, oh yeah, God told me it's okay. He doesn't mind me sleeping with my girlfriend. He's cool with that. The, the answer to that question is no. Unless something as game-changing as the death and resurrection of Jesus happens, no, God isn't changing the rules. So when God tells Peter, you no longer have to worry about the food laws, it isn't because he just changed his mind. You know, he's just saying, you know, I reconsidered that. I was in a, you know, a really bad time back then. I was pretty cranky. So I gave you some harsh rules. I mean, seriously, outlawing bacon, come on, you know? Like, how could I be a good God and not let you have that sweet, sweet meat candy? Seriously, that was a dumb idea. My bad, take it back. Not at all. God isn't changing his mind. He's saying, at that place in time, at that stage in the story, that was a good thing. But now the story has progressed and I have done something in Jesus that makes it so that, that those laws no longer make sense. Now, there are some people who hear this and they say, well, does that mean we don't need to worry about the Old Testament? Can we just throw that out? We're, we're, we're in the New Testament era now. We're Christ followers. That, that's not the case either. That, that would be like saying, you know what? If you wanna watch Lord of the Rings, just start with the third one because you know, the, the stuff in the earlier ones, they change and pass and you can just you know, jump to the end. That doesn't make sense either. So we gotta decide what carries over from the Old Testament to the New Testament and what doesn't. Here's a way to think about this. Uh, you know how a prism works, okay? So you got a prism and white light enters one side of the prism. And as it passes through the prism, the prism bends the light, but it bends different wavelengths of light, different amounts. So different colors uh, come out at different angles. So some wavelengths come out changed quite a bit. Other wavelengths, less, and other wavelengths, even less. This is how it works in the Old with the Old Testament law, okay? And some of you Pink Floyd fans are like, yes, I'm so excited for this illustration, dark side of the moon. Um, we're not talking about Pink Floyd, we're talking about Jesus here, okay? Jesus is the prism, and the Old Testament laws are the white light. The white light of the laws comes into the prism and some of the laws change more than others. Everything comes through Jesus and comes out in some form on the other side, but some of them are changed more than others. So some laws were not changed very much at all. These are called the moral laws, the moral laws. Basically, they stay the same. So uh, on one side of Jesus and the other, murder is still murder, okay? You can't cheat on your spouse. Lying is still a sin, doesn't change. Other laws change quite a bit more. These are called the civil laws, the civil laws. These are the laws that God gave to Israel about how to run their country. They were a nation. And so they had laws about uh, how to care for the poor, their welfare system, uh, how to have a fair trial, how to handle property disputes or damages and things like that. Now these laws, because God is no longer working with one particular nation, are no longer the laws that God says, you've got to have these as your sort of laws of the government. He doesn't want us to impose those on America or Saudi Arabia or Japan or anything like that. But those laws do express values and principles that God cares about. And so they are values and principles that we can factor into our thinking about the world. So they don't apply very directly, but in principle, they factor into how we see things. 
Other laws change quite a bit, so much so that it almost feels like they don't apply in any way. These are called ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws are the laws that concern things like priests, sacrifices, the tabernacle, the temple, the religious system of Israel. And included in those laws are the rules about clean and unclean foods. Now, these laws are fulfilled by Jesus because Jesus accomplishes all of, those, all of what those things were supposed to do. He is our temple. He is the final sacrifice. He is the great high priest. He makes us clean. And so because of that, those laws do not apply to us directly in any literal way. They simply become metaphors about things. So we can talk about uh, us as offering our lives as offerings, as sacrifices to God. Uh, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But we don't make literal sacrifices in a literal building called the temple. And it's these ceremonial and these civil laws that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. And now because those laws no longer apply directly, in verse 34, Peter can say this. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. What that means there is not simply that God just accepts anybody who does good things. What he's saying is that there's no more laws that separate the Jews from everybody else. And now the good news of what God has done in Jesus can go out to people of every nation and anybody who responds will be acceptable. That's why Peter then goes on to explain the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel. And in verse 43, he says very clearly, everyone, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The story has moved forward. Let's look at the second breakthrough. In order to overcome our cultural history, we need to redefine us and them. We need to redefine us and them. For Peter, us is always Jewish Christians and does not include people from other places and cultures. So God's got to redefine that for him. Here's how he did it. Let's look at verse 44. This is going to be a little confusing at first, but we'll explain how this redefines things, okay? While Peter was still speaking these words, explaining the gospel, the Holy Spirit came on all these Gentiles who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Now, as I read this, some of you are thinking, what in the world? Like the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues, what is going on here? Is that supposed to happen when I receive the Holy Spirit? Because it wasn't like that for me. Simple answer to that question is no. Most of the time when the Spirit comes to live in someone, when they first come to faith in Jesus, it does not look like this. So why is it happening like this here? Well, you got to remember at the beginning of the book of Acts, when the Spirit first comes on people at the uh, Feast of Pentecost, it is a big sensational event in the history of the world. And so God makes it really clear, the Spirit has arrived and you can't miss it. But then, several times later in the book, something similar to Pentecost happens again. But each time, it's at a key moment when the gospel crosses a cultural boundary that was very difficult to cross. You gotta remember, Jewish believers were not gonna be convinced very easily to welcome in Samaritans and Gentiles. So when the Spirit comes on these groups, he comes in a big, dramatic way, just like in Pentecost, and he does it when the apostles and the Jewish leaders of the church are watching so they can see it. And the idea is this, if God sent the spirit on them in the same way he spent it on, sent it on us, then maybe they aren't actually them, maybe they're actually part of us. If God is welcoming them the same way he welcomed us, 
maybe we need to welcome them too. This is why in verse 47, Peter says, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So Peter ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Notice again here, just like we saw last week, when people put their faith in Christ right away, they find a way to get baptized. If you're, you have surrendered to Christ, but you've not been baptized, make sure that you do so at the next available opportunity. We're, we're gonna have a baptism service in the fall. Make sure you sign up for that. But what does baptism symbolize? It symbolizes both the, the union of people with Jesus, but also being united with God's people. Uh, baptism is like the adoption ceremony into the family of God. When a church baptizes someone, it's a way of us saying, we recognize you as a fellow brother, a fellow sister. You are part of the family. So for Peter to say in front of all of these Jewish believers, baptize those Gentiles, that's a radical, radical thing. It's his way of saying they are no longer them, they are part of us. Now it's important to notice about this is that Peter does not then say, you know what, you can be a part of us, but you really have to kind of change your whole way of life. You, you can't, you've got to become culturally Jewish to fit in. Uh, if you want to join us, you're going to have to give up Gentile ways and learn our language and assimilate to our culture and, and basically become just like us. No, they are allowed to retain their culture even as they get incorporated into the church. Uh, studies have shown that the most effective teams are ones that have a high level of diversity on the team, but only under certain conditions. In some cases, diversity makes things harder, but in other cases, it makes them better. For diversity to be an advantage, the members of the team have to have what are called dual identities, dual identities. A dual identity works like this. You see yourself equally as both a part of the larger group and a part of your subgroup. So groups are unhealthy when they say, everyone has to assimilate to the larger group to conform to the dominant culture. You gotta dress like us, act like us, think like us, talk like us, you gotta become us. When you do that, you lose the distinct value that each group brings, their unique strengths that they're offering. You also run into problems when every subgroup says, I'm not really here for the whole group, I'm here for my group. It's our group's interests against other group's interests. And it devolves into a power struggle between generations or genders or ethnicities. Instead, what needs to happen is you need to have a dual identity where you see yourself both as the big part of the big group and a part of your subgroup. And what that means is each one of us needs to say to people from other cultures the same thing that Peter did when Cornelius bowed down to him. Cornelius bowed down to him when he showed up, basically saying, you're my superior, you should tell me what to do. But in verse 26, Peter says, stand up. I'm only a man myself. Peter's saying, I refuse to exercise that kind of privilege or power over you. Do not bow down to me and treat me as a God. Those of us in dominant cultural groups need to say the same thing to those who have been made to bow down to our way of doing things. We need to say, stand up. God values your culture. We value your culture. You are part of the same family with us, but you do not have to become just like me. This is what has made Christianity the most multicultural faith in all of world history. If you compare the cultural makeup of any other world religion to Christianity, you'll find that most adherents of other religions are from a similar cultural context. So there are lots of people in Islam, but most of them are made up of similar cultural groups in the Middle East or in North Africa. There are lots of Hindus, but almost all of them are of Indian descent. 
Buddhism has gained some traction in Western pop culture, but in its traditional forms, it hasn't really traveled very far from its Asian origins. But Christianity started off as a Middle Eastern religion, a Jewish movement, and now there are Christ followers on every continent with fully contextualized expressions in thousands of cultures in Africa and Latin America and Asia and Europe. Now, that's part of the strength of Christianity. It is not owned by any one culture. God does not ask you to leave your culture behind when you join his family. He asks you to bring it in for the benefit of everybody else. Let's look at the final breakthrough here. There, there are three moments here when Peter does something very, very subtle, very simple, but also very, very courageous. The first is when Cornelius' men just show, show up at his house. In verse 23, it says, Peter invited the men, these Gentile men, into his home to be his guests. Then when he shows up at Cornelius' house, it says Peter actually entered the house. And then at the end of the chapter, Peter sa- it says that Peter stayed with them for a few days. Now those might seem like simple, subtle details in the text, but they're a big deal. They, they show us that if we wanna overcome the barrier of personal experience, we need to experience their world. We need to enter the world of other people and get to know it. Uh, last week, I told you a bit about a church in Panola, Alabama, that I, uh, an African-American church that was burned down by three white teenagers. At my old church, we sent a, a team of people, a crew to kind of help with some of the rebuilding there. And I was the high school pastor there at the time, so I was leading this crew. And uh, while we were there uh, during the, the week, Sunday came and they said, hey, you're the pastor from the other church, so we want you to sit on the stage with our pastor. So I sat on the stage with Pastor Little and he actually said, why don't you give a message? So I preached a message. After the service, see this man kind of in the back of the church and he's weeping. He's an older guy and I realize he's one of the deacons at the church and so I go up and say, hey, what's going on? Is everything all right? And he says, I never thought I'd see the day. I never thought I'd see the day. But we were were some of the first white people to ever worship in their church and I was the first white pastor to preach in their church. At that moment, I'm like, this is, is an incredible thing to be a part of. I was actually pretty proud of myself of being a part of something like that. A few days later, the, one of the white churches in town get wind of what we're doing and they say, hey, you guys, why don't you come? We're having kind of a, a picnic that we get together with a few other churches. Why don't your group come and join us with the picnic? It'll, it'll be a lot of fun. We'll get to know you. So we show up and we bring along Pastor Little and we don't think much about what's about to happen. But we show up and it's all white churches. And Pastor Little is there and he's not acting like himself. And the whole time it's kind of awkward and go up to Pastor Little and say, hey, what's going on? And he says, well... They do this every year, and this is the first time I've ever been invited, and it's because I'm with you. And, and there's some people here that I've never met, but Panola is not a big town. He says, I've never met some of these people, totally separate. And I'm thinking, yeah, this is what we're doing. We're knocking down barriers. We're fighting racism. We're getting, kicking prejudice in the teeth. Like, here we go. Like, we're awesome. A few days later, white church says, hey, why don't you come to our, you know, Wednesday night prayer meeting and you tell us all about your project and you can, you know, let us know what's going on. So I'm telling them, hey, we're on the other side of town and we're rebuilding this church and we're working on some homes of people that are run down and we're, we're really helping out and doing all this stuff. And the whole time in my mind, I'm judging these people. Look at you. You're ignoring needs in your own backyard. You don't even know the people on the other side of town. And it's all because of your prejudice. I'm thinking, oh man, we'll, we'll show them. After I explain all this, Someone says, hey, you know what? It's really cool. Our, our youth group is actually on a mission trip right now. And I say, oh, yeah, where, where, where are they at? And they say, oh, they're up in uh, Chicago, just outside of Chicago, kind of in your backyard, helping some people out. And I realize this is the problem that all of us face, isn't it? Like, it's one thing to say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I love other cultures. I love the idea of diversity. I'll even go serve people. It doesn't matter if they're like me or not. I'll be there for them. That's great. You go someplace else and you do that, but you come home and when it comes to relationships ongoing in your neighborhood, in your backyard, do we actually do it? Think about your friends, people you spend time with. Are they all of the same cultural or ethnic background? Are they all in the same age or stage of life as you? Do they all have a similar level of education? They all come from the same socioeconomic status. I mean, I I include myself in that interrogation. I find this so challenging that most of the people around me are a lot like me. I'm totally cool to go preach in a black church on a mission trip, but at the time, I didn't know any black pastors back at home. I I know more now, but not necessarily a lot. The, The first step might be something really, really simple, though. Peter invited Cornelius's men into his home. Peter entered Cornelius's house. Peter stayed with them a few days. But we need to start spending normal, ordinary time with people. To, to make it really concrete, I'm talking about eating food, eating meals with people who are not like you. When was the last time you had someone over to your home that was not from your cultural background? someone who is not in your age or stage of life, someone who wasn't in the same tax bracket as you. If you want to apply this passage to your life, the the first thing I would tell you to do is simply start eating meals with people who aren't like you. Before we figure out all the big issues in society that that divide us and cause us to fight, just start getting to know people. Invite people over, ask them about their world. Listen, learn, put yourselves in their shoes. Experience their world, enter into their space. Get comfortable with people who are different from you. The church is called to both unity and diversity. And that can be a really inspiring, cool idea, but it is a really, really messy one on on the ground. As we continue reading the book of Acts, you're going to see how hard this gets. They've got debates and there's controversy and uh, Peter even struggles with it. He he lapses and uh, in Galatians, Paul actually has to call him out and say, you can't just hang out with Jews. You've got to hang out with Gentiles. There's whole letters in the New Testament that are about this. It was hard for them. It's going to be hard for us. But here's the good news. Diversity and unity is God's dream for the church. In this story, who's the one calling all the shots? God is saying, Peter, you gotta do this. Cornelius, you gotta do this. He's forcing them together. He's bringing them together. God is the the one who overcomes the barriers. And if we seek him, if we ask him, he can do the same for us. So let's do that right now. God, we come to you because you are the only one who can overcome the barriers that we've put up in our world. God, this is so hard for us. We, we, we struggle to do this. Our, our highest ideals still make it really, really hard for us to play this out in real relationships. So God, we ask that you would move by the power of your spirit, that you would draw together people in our church, that Christ Community Church we, would become a place where people who are not like each other become one in you. God, that's our prayer. Make us one. God, now as we take our gifts and our offerings, we pray that those would be used for your purposes, that they would be pleasing to you. As we sing to you, we pray that you would hear our praises, that you would hear our prayers, and that you would respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.